Good morning. Today is Monday, August 29th, and you're listening to Thy Strong Word, the program where each weekday morning we explore the Holy Scriptures through which God bespeaks us righteous and nourishes our faith. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo of St. John Lutheran Church in Laverne, Minnesota. Thank you for tuning in to Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you anytime, anywhere. Don't forget, you can subscribe to the program using your favorite podcasting app. Just search for Thy Strong Word or search your app store for KFUO's own app. Thy Strong Word is underwritten by the generous folks at the Lutheran Heritage Foundation. Learn more about what they do at lhfmissions.org. Now, if you have questions or comments about today's show, or maybe you just want to say hi, feel free to email me at pastorboo at gmail. Today, we open our Bibles to Romans chapter 11. Now, we're going to be looking at just the first half, verses 1 through 23, and to give us his insights into this section, I'm pleased to welcome as my guest the Reverend Dr. Daniel Olson, pastor of St. Paul Lutheran Church in Luxembourg, Wisconsin. Pastor Olson, welcome to Thy Strong Word. Yes, thank you. Good to be with you. This is the first time that I am meeting you on the air. I think you've been on before, so maybe I should have said welcome back. Just a few questions. How are things going at your congregation? You know, share with the listeners the amazing ways that God is working and moving through you and through your congregation. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, We thank God for all of the many blessings he continues to pour out upon the congregation. Uh, We've got a lot going on as far as the church and school, uh, September 18th, we will finally be rededicating the church uh, after being out of uh, that, out of our worship, uh, out of our uh, sanctuary uh, since the beginning of June for uh, renovations there. And then, of course, as the we come up on the school year, we also have a large addition to the school going on. And um, that, of course, we don't have an exact completion date. Uh, We have hoped for the first day of school, but uh, nobody can guarantee when windows and various other things, if they're going to arrive right on schedule. So uh, in the meantime, as the school enrollment grows as well, we um, will be making the best of things until that addition is completed. But uh, But September 18th, we're excited to be getting back into the church building once again. Well, that's great. So these are positive things, right? There was no damage or anything. This was just, oh, excellent. So we're renovating just to give better glory to God and serve the people there. That's amazing. Yeah, absolutely. The, uh, you know, the congregation, of course, it's uh, the church, uh, the the sanctuary is about 130 years old. And, um, oh, wow. You know, the school, of course, is newer, but, uh, but both, uh, definitely in need of additional space and, um, definitely in need of some, some updating. Excellent. You have a lot of things on your plate there. Now I will ask you, it is VBS season. Did you guys do a VBS? We did. We had our vacation Bible school though, at, uh, towards the beginning of summer. So oh, okay. Good, good. So you did it out of the, maybe to not compete with a lot of others. Or perhaps it's well, just different yeah. there in Wisconsin. I guess I'm being a little uh, presumptuous here. Here in Minnesota, they're all towards the end of summer <laughs> as school starts to come back. So yeah, maybe that's just how it is there in Wisconsin. I think it's, I think it's more about each congregation trying to find the, the dates that are going to work best for them, that are going to get the most uh, children involved and uh, going to uh, lead to the most volunteers being available and interfering with the Fewest vacations possible, you know, here in God's country, of course, uh, summers are short and uh, people uh, like to get out and camp and all that kind of thing. Always a struggle, those volunteers, but God bless the volunteers who step up and spend some of their own time and talent and energy to make these kind of things happen. Well, brother, before we dive into the text, I would like to impose on you, if I may, that you would lead us in a prayer to begin with. Yeah, absolutely. We pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the many blessings that you continue to pour out upon us and pour out upon your church. We thank you especially for the grace that you to us through our Savior, Jesus Christ. 
And we thank you for giving us the confidence of knowing and being reminded of once again here today that our salvation is purely a gift that you give to us through the merits of Jesus Christ. We ask that you would protect us at all times against pride and arrogance, and that at all times we would be moved to hold forth that good news of salvation in Jesus Christ to the world around us. Guide us here today as we receive your word and as your Holy Spirit is poured out upon us, that we would be kept steadfast in our faith in Jesus as our Savior. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen. So to begin with today, I'd like to read maybe the first six verses of our appointed text, which is chapter 11. I will be reading from the English Standard Version of the Holy Bible. I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means, for I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets, and they have demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself seven thousand men who have not bowed down the knee to Baal. So, too, at the present time there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. So, yeah, let's, let's start just with those powerful verses. So far, Paul has been talking about Israel, the nation, but then there's this subgroup, this sort of truly Israel, the remnant, those who have remained faithful to God and his covenant. But at the same time, as we've known, as Paul has laid out very clearly in Romans, there is no distinction between Jews and Gentiles when it comes to salvation, because even though the Jews had access to the prophets and the law, people are saved by faith, and we know that faith is a gift. But Paul has been kind of heavy-handed against the Israelites, against the Jews, against his own people, because they had such access to God's will and yet fell away from it. So he begins with a, another classic, classic, te- a classic question, rather, by St. Paul, which says, has God, je- God rejected his people? And of course, the answer is by no means. Pastor, take us into that. Paul is quick to defend the fact that he's a Jew himself. What's causing him to be so defensive? Well, you have uh, Paul, you know, prior to this, who's talking about how so many have rejected Jesus Christ. They have rejected that good news, and it leads to the question, then whether or not God has rejected his people. And of course, Paul immediately, as you point out, says, absolutely not. And he holds himself up as as an example. He is Jewish, tribe of Benjamin, and God has not rejected him. And of course, Paul goes into the fact that it is by grace. God has kept. He has preserved a remnant. And, you know, he immediately goes into the example of Elijah. And in those verses, and very, uh, very easy for people to feel that God has, you know, rejected his people, that there's no one left. And it would be easy for uh, Paul to feel that way. And yet Paul is living proof of God's faithfulness to Israel as it comes to salvation, right? So he's rejecting that notion, just as you said, that God has turned against his people. But he does say, he has this phrase, whom he foreknew. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. What does that mean, Pastor? Well, I'm talking about the fact that God has not rejected those, those that he has chosen. You know, since uh, he chose the people of Israel, he chose them that his word might be proclaimed, that uh, that the good news of salvation might come to all people. He chose the people of Israel to carry out that uh, purpose of salvation of all people, referring to the Messiah, to Jesus, uh, coming from the ultimately from the, the, the seed of David. And, of course, we know that God chooses his elect from before the creation of the world. Yeah, in eight, chapter 8, verse 29, Paul said, For those whom he foreknew, 
he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn of many brothers. Right, so God knows all things, and he elects us to faith, but he does his electing work through spreading the gospel through Jesus, because of course God at the same time desires all people to be saved. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, uh, he chose He chose you before the creation of the world. That's a pretty amazing thing that he he knows us and he has chosen us for salvation, wants all of us to be saved. And again, even though, as, uh, you know, Paul points out, you know, uses the example of Elijah, it, it's uh, pretty easy for us to question that. You know, certainly Elijah, as great as he was, looked around at the world in which he lived and he questioned God's grace, questioned whether or not there was anybody else. Yeah, how often has Elijah's words, perhaps not the exact words, but the sentiment been on our lips, either as pastors or fellow Christians in the listening audience, when he says, Lord, they've killed your prophets, they've demolished your altars, I am alone left, and they seek my life. Now, He's speaking at what we would call in the in the legal world an excited utterance when he says, I alone am left. This isn't that he was literally the only one left, but that's how he feels, right? Because he's as you said, he's looking around and it just seems like everybody is against God and his will and his altars in this case. And when we think about that today, when you go online, you look at social media, you read the news, you turn on the TV, Lord, they've demolished your altars. I feel like I'm the only one left. And Paul reminds us of what God's reply is to him, which is that he's kept this remnant. How does that apply to us today, right? Where is the where is the gospel and the comfort today? For any of our listeners out there who are thinking, you know, I really feel alone. Yeah, I know that I'm not the only Christian, but it definitely feels like I'm in the minority. How can we deliver gospel to them? Yeah, well, we are in the minority. Absolutely. You know, there's no there's no there's no doubt about that. And then Jesus of course tells us we should expect that, right? You know, he he makes it very clear that in latter times there are going to be those who are uh, certainly going to turn away and reject his truth. The comfort of course the gospel and it is that God chooses us. He preserves us. He keeps us in our faith in Jesus. Uh, that's, that's, of course, the, the first thing. He talks about his grace, that it's, uh, it's so too at the present. There is a remnant chosen by grace. So he chooses us by grace, not because of what we have done, which, of course, could never give us any kind of assurance. We think of uh, our sin, but he chooses us by grace, so he preserves us, even in the midst of a world that is, has so, in so many cases, turned away. But he also does give us the assurance that there is a remnant. We are not alone. I mean, just as he told Elijah, uh, he made it very clear that he was not alone. We're not alone either. It may feel like it, and we have a lot of, uh, we have a lot of uh, discouragement and despair in the church today. Uh, very, very common, and we know that that is especially true among clergy. Uh, we know that there are uh, feelings of, of being alone and that what you do doesn't make any difference, that there's no point. But yet we have the words of, of God here. God tells us that he preserves a remnant. We're not alone. He preserves us. He keeps us in our faith in Jesus. He chooses us by his grace. And he preserves a remnant. So we're not alone. And we have the confidence of knowing that Jesus tells us the gates of hell are not going to prevail against his church. There will be a remnant when he returns. Mm. I think that's something that we as American Christians are just now, in the past couple decades even, getting our minds around. The American Christian really held some prominence in society, say in the 40s, 50s, maybe getting into the 60s, but that is no longer the case. We have to recognize, as our brothers and sisters in Europe and Africa and China and the Middle East and all these other places, we're just now coming to the fact that, yeah, I guess we are part of a remnant. We are a minority. 
And that's affecting us more and more, which is leading to this despair. Uh, so uh, certainly folks out there, pray for your pastors, pray for your DCEs, your other church workers, but pray for yourself too, that you can both recognize that you are indeed a part of the minority, but that being part of this minority, this remnant, is because God has chosen you to be a part of it. And and that sort of takes the law of feeling alone and turns it on its head. Right now, you have to understand that you've been given a task. You've been set aside, made holy, and that is to hopefully spread the gospel so that God can continue his electing work, grow that remnant, even though it will still remain a remnant. Just as you so rightly said, Pastor, even Jesus told us that this was going to be the case. Yeah, absolutely. He did not promise us that uh, that the, the church would thrive by worldly standards after his ascension into heaven. He, he promised us the challenges. He promised us suffering. Um, and so we should not be surprised when we see that. And of course, you know, again, the the example of Elijah and uh, all of, you know, how he talked about how they have uh, demolished your altars and so forth. And we, we see this in our country today. We look at the headlines, and, and it's probably, certainly in my lifetime, the first time that I've ever seen in America where we see churches being targeted uh, specifically, uh, you know, oftentimes as the result of, of issues of the church taking a stand for life, but we see churches specifically being targeted uh, for vandalism and disruption and, and things. And uh, this, is, this is what we should expect. It's not new. It may be new for us as American Christians, but it's not new. Thankfully, we weren't targeted, but I can tell you that I asked you earlier about you, your church doing VBS. My congregation did VBS earlier this month. And it was focused on the sanctity of life. And we got some nasty responses, or at least one, from someone out in the community who was very adamant that she understood that we would be talking about God, but she didn't think it was the church's place to talk about pro-life issues or things that she said belong to science, not us. So we're, we're seeing, even if it's thankfully not physical attacks in some cases, unfortunately it is in others, but we're definitely seeing more and more resistance to what would normally be just considered the basics of, of belief. So I'd like to continue in our text before, because our break is coming up fairly quickly. So I'd like to continue with, go back just one to chapter, sorry, verse six, and then continue through verse 10. Here we go. Six again, and then through 10. But if it is by grace... It is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see, and ears that would not hear, down to this very day. And, David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. Now, Pastor, this is kind of a tough text, not only what he's implicating here, but also where he goes in Scripture to defend it. I'm hoping you're going to help us understand this. So what then? And he says Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking, but then it says the elect obtained it. How are we to understand that? Well, you know, God chose again. It's the doctrine of election. God chose us before the uh, He chose His elect, those who were going to uh, receive His salvation. But He also tells us it's by grace, not by works. And He's talking about the fact that there are those who reject that grace of God. And you know, when He goes into the uh, verses in uh, eight and nine, He's giving examples of. Uh, how people have in the past rejected that grace of God and their hearts have been hardened as a result and it's led to their uh, destruction. And of course, we also see, uh, we see as you know, in David, we see how this points us to Christ and the um, rejection that David received just so Jesus re would receive. But ultimately, for us, 
we receive that grace. We do not reject it. And we, we rejoice in that. Yeah, you notice that it says the elect were hardened. People have some trouble with this because they think about God hardening the heart of Pharaoh. They might even think back just a couple of chapters where Paul says, so then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. So the question then is begged, is God forcing these people to not believe? God gave them a spirit of stupor. He gave them eyes that would not see, ears that would not hear. So how do we reconcile between the God who desires all to be saved and the God who hardens hearts, or maybe we should say lets them be hardened? Well, exactly. We, we know that uh, God wants—Scripture tells us that God wants all to be saved. So one, you know, basically a way of summing it up, I suppose, in real simple terms is if you are saved, it is entirely because of God's grace. If you are condemned, it is your own fault. So uh, on the one hand, uh, if we are saved, it is because God has chosen us. He has given us his grace. If we are condemned, it is because we have rejected. And so when we talk about the hardening of hearts, we talk about the fact that God gives them over to the hardness of their hearts. God does not force his grace on anyone. And of course, we could go into the whole issue of the unanswerable question. Why are not all saved? And the short answer is because there are those God desires all to be saved. So we have that truth of Scripture. But then we also have the truth that people, that there are those who reject that grace. So why are some saved and not others? Because they don't harden because they receive God's grace. Others harden their hearts. I think that that's a really important point to make because we, we like God, desire other people, if not all people, of course, to come to the knowledge of God and be saved. And we struggle when we see, especially if it's our friends and family who have either rejected Christ or walked away or maybe never believed to begin with. And we want to have reasons for that. And the reason that if, – if the reason is God hardened their heart, we feel like that's unjust until we recognize that all people are born sinners, as Paul has made exceptionally clear this point to this point in his letter, but that we have basically hardened hearts from the get-go. It's God's Word, it's His Holy Spirit giving us faith that does the softening. So having a hardened heart is the default fallen position, not that God is saying, okay, I'm going to harden all these particular people's hearts in order that they can never be saved. But as you so adequately put it, or eloquently put it, I'm sorry, God looks at them and he gives us the inclinations of our heart. He desires that we be saved, but yet the fallen human nature is an enemy of God and wants to continue to reject him. So whenever we start to worry over what is God's electing work, how do we apply that to the lives of those who we desperately want to be saved, but they just don't seem to be coming around to it? we have to remember that instead of questioning God, it might be a better use of our time to continue to use the tools that he gives us to reach out to them, right? Keep proclaiming the gospel, keep loving them, keep answering their objections with gentleness and kindness and love. And we, we give thanks to God that he has chosen us by grace. We rejoice that no one, I mean, we always start from the perspective that you know, basically, uh, everyone is good and God owes us salvation. But the reality is that we are, we come into this world as sinners and we rejoice that God chooses us, that he gives us his grace. It's amazing that he chooses us, that he gives us his grace. It's amazing that, that anyone is saved because no one is deserving of his salvation. So rather than sitting around and blaming God for uh, those who have rejected, we rejoice that he has given us his grace. Obviously, we have concerns about those who are outside the church and outside the faith. We want to bring them in, but we cannot forget to reflect on our own sinfulness, our own, the own fact that we deserve death and hell, and yet give praise and joy to God 
who is so gracious that he sent his son Jesus to live and die for us so that we might believe, so that we might say. This seems like a good place to take a pause. And when we return from our break, Pastor Olson and I will continue our discussion of Romans chapter 11. We'll see you on the other side. On America's college campuses, doors are open to sharing the good news of Jesus Christ. The number of international students studying at American schools has more than quadrupled over the past decade. For many of these young men and women, it's their first time living in a free society where they can ask questions about Christianity. You can help answer their questions. Go to lhfmissions.org and partner with the Lutheran Heritage Foundation to translate good Lutheran books into languages these students can read and understand. lhfmissions.org Welcome back to Thy Strong Word. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo, and with me today is the Reverend Dr. Daniel Olson of St. Paul Lutheran Church in Luxembourg, Wisconsin. Now, Pastor, before the break, we were digging into verses oh, 7 through 10 about the fact that some people's hearts are hardened against God, and God doesn't force faith on us. He doesn't force us to believe. He lets our, our hearts be hardened in some cases. So as we go into the rest of this section, which is verses 11 through 24, is there anything else you want to cover before we move on? No, I, you know, we made it pretty clear again. Uh, we, we avoid uh, uh, falling into the trap of irresistible grace and all of those kinds of things. Uh, we're saved truly by God's grace. And um, if people, God offers his grace. People can reject that, and sadly, many do. But as you said, uh, and that comes out in the uh, verses that uh, we're about to go into now, uh, Paul focuses his energies on, instead of blaming God for someone not being saved, he focuses his energies on proclaiming the gospel to them. Chapter 11 begins with this idea of, has God rejected his people? A rhetorical question, which Paul answers for us, by no means. Now, in verse 11, he's starting to move toward the relationship of salvation to the Gentiles. So I'm going to read just a few verses through verse 16. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles, so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Now I'm speaking to you Gentiles. Inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump, and if the root is holy, so are the branches. Wow, so you can see Paul's heart in these verses for his own people, the people of his own nation, as he says elsewhere. But then he says, yes, they're in a position where their response to God's will has caused or brought about or focused the, his mission on the Gentiles to save them. But if that's the case, then how much more would it benefit everyone if they were to return? So did they stumble in order that they might fall? He makes it clear that's not true. But take us into that. How did the trespass of the Jews bring to light salvation for the Gentiles? Yeah, I mean, Paul says that, uh, well, for one thing, Paul now turns his attention to the Gentiles. It includes the Gentiles, and he takes the gospel message to the Gentiles. and. You know, it is because of their rejecting that now the gospel goes out to the Gentiles. And then he also talks about, hopefully this will make Israel jealous as well. So their trespass means riches for the world. Their rejecting of the gospel, now it goes out to the world, to those outside of 
those who are not Jewish. It goes out to all people, and it means riches then for the Gentiles, for the nations. But hopefully also, Paul points out that this will make the Jew, the Jewish uh, people, this will make them jealous as well, that they will have a desire also to receive that gospel. And so there will be not just the Gentiles being included, but also that there will be Jewish people that will see this, how the gospel has brought life to the Gentiles and have a desire to receive the gospel. Certainly it was God's plan all along for salvation to be extended to the Gentiles, right, through his promise to Abraham. But as St. Paul himself quoted in chapter 10, verse 19, he says, But I ask, did Israel not understand? He quotes Moses, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. So Israel's efforts to kind of establish their own righteousness, their own set of salvation that comes by means of the law, had this not primary but secondary effect, right? It it excluded the Gentiles essentially by its requirements, and that's thwarting God's plan. So what we see here is that God is going to bless the Gentiles even though the Israelites had fallen astray from God's will. And, you know, again, uh, Paul talks about, you know, creating a sense of, of jealousy, making, you know, looking and wanting to have that same salvation. and. Um, yeah, we we look at that. Uh, we look at others, and Paul hopes that they will see how that gospel message and the the light that has been given to the Gentiles that this will make them want to to receive that as well. I think it's appropriate now to talk about the difference between jealousy and envy, and that is that to be jealous is to be afraid that someone's going to take something you have, whereas to be envious is to want what someone else has. So when the scriptures call God jealous, it's not that he wants something that someone else has, it's that he doesn't, he wants to keep what he has, and that, of course, is his people. And so when we see the scriptures talking about Israel being jealous, even in the choice of words, Paul and the Holy Spirit through him is making clear that the jealousy of Israel is not that they don't have something that the Gentiles have and they want it, that would be envy, but rather they are jealous that they might have to share the, the, the salvation. They might have to share God's love and peace that comes from, from knowing Christ with the Gentiles. And so this making them jealous would hopefully, and that's the idea Paul's laying out here, provoke them towards salvation, to claim once again that they have access to God's grace, and it's not through the keeping of this law, but it's what it has always been, and that is through faith. Yeah. And this was, this was the struggle of the early church, and still continues uh, to some degree today, is, is the gospel really for everyone? And course, we know that uh, the Apostle Paul in the book of in Acts, that was uh, Paul dealt with that again and again, that the gospel is indeed that good news of the Savior is for everyone. And we get into that at times, even in the church today. Sometimes the church doesn't, uh, doesn't uh, reach out as uh, well as it might. Therein lies some application for us today right away. And that is that we must not let our hearts be focused on, you know, this gospel message is for a certain kind of people or it's for people who look like us and act like us because God is the God of both the Jews and the Gentiles, and God is the God of all people, of course. And our goal is to reach out to people in the name of Christ so that they too may be saved. And I think St. Paul has some reasonable expectations here. He says in verse 13, I'm speaking to you Gentiles inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles. I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous. And then I love this part, and thus save some of them. So he has reasonable expectations, even though he has full faith in the Holy Spirit to do the work that God does, he also recognizes that some people are going to continue to harden their hearts. 
And therein lies another piece of application for us. When we recognize that all people need to be saved and when we go out and show no preference for people based on appearances or anything else and we do what God wants us to do and proclaim his word, we then can sometimes become very frustrated because, well, people still reject Christ. People still harden their hearts. So Paul here gives us an example of recognizing that even some coming to faith is worth all of the effort that we might expend, but certainly, of course, the Holy Spirit's doing all the work. Absolutely. Um, Yeah, it's easy for the church to become discouraged and think, you know, just as Elijah, you know, again, the example that Paul gives, it's easy to feel that what we do, there's no point. It does no good. But yet Paul points out that even some, uh, you know, he still continues with that work, continues to proclaim that good news of Jesus Christ to all people. Let's keep reading in our text. So we ended with verse 16 that said, If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump, and if the root is holy, so are the branches. Continuing with verse 17. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and severity of God, severity towards those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off, and even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted, contrary to nature, into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? Beautiful imagery, imagery that would have resonated with the people of first century Rome, these ideas of the olive tree and the husbandry that goes along with grafting branches in and out of them. Of course, in this case, the natural branches, the root, are the Jews. Some of the branches have been removed because of unbelief, and the Gentiles are those being grafted in. Take us through this wonderful illustration and and how Paul is trying to communicate the message to his audience. Yeah, Paul is talking about the fact that through faith, uh, the church, you know, he's talking about the, the church, the whole Israel of God, everyone who has faith in Jesus Christ. And there are those who have uh, fallen. They've been taken out. They're cut. Uh, we kind of think about Jesus, I am the vine, you are the branches, and uh, those grafted in. Why are they grafted in? How are they grafted in? Why are they righteous? Because they're connected to the vine, because they're connected to Jesus. So Paul talks about, don't be arrogant. You know, it's very easy to look at ourselves and think, well, hey, um, I'm a part of the chosen. Uh, But Paul talks about not becoming arrogant, because, but recognizing that it is purely by grace. Uh, Despite our sinfulness, we are included in this. We are grafted in, even though we don't deserve to be. Yes, so far, Paul has used the Gentiles as sort of this example to the Jews that it is not by ethnic superiority, it's not by your heritage that you somehow inherit the kingdom, but rather through faith, because even the Gentiles who were not given the law have also been brought in. But it seems like perhaps he's made that argument so strong for 10 chapters that the unattended effect is that the Gentiles now think of themselves very highly, right? Now they they maybe need a little humbling. The Jews have been humbled for sure, and Paul has time and again responded with the idea that, yeah, I humble you because I'm one of you. But he has a little contrapuntal here. He's thinking the Gentiles are now going to think they are somehow special in a way that's 
not consistent with what God has to say. So, yeah, I think that he's trying to humble the Gentiles here. Yeah, absolutely. And, it, and it's always easy for us, it, 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 the sinful human nature, always wanting to look at ourselves and see ourselves as being better than others. Uh, but Paul says, uh, don't become proud in the verse 20, but fear. And so we talk about that uh, fear of the Lord. And, you know, the fear of rejecting him, the fear of coming to depend on ourselves and being found apart from faith in Jesus Christ, trusting in him for our salvation. So, yeah, human nature is always wanting to look at us and compare ourselves to others and see ourselves as better than others. But we look at Christ and we understand that we are no better than others, that we have been made, we have been connected to Christ and we have received his righteousness, not because of anything better about us. Yeah, there's nothing more humbling than fear. So do not become proud, but fear. In Proverbs 28, it says, Blessed is the one who fears the Lord always, but whoever hardens his heart will fall into calamity. So we see both that language of fear and hardening of heart. But then Philippians, Paul writes, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And again, it's this fear that submits to the reality that God is wholly other, that God is outside of us, he is righteous, and salvation comes from him. Yeah, we, we look at all that Christ has done for us, and we fear rejecting him. We would obviously fear ever separating ourselves from him. And so we get into the whole concept of the fear of the Lord. And, you know, that's a, that's a, a large concept, but, you know, sometimes it's minimized down to, well, it means we have respect for God. Well, right. You know, I think it's uh, quite a bit more than that. But it's, well, I always said that there are Greek words for respect. So yeah. if he if he just meant respect, he would have used that yes, word. And he clearly uses the Greek word for fear here. Doesn't mean that right. we're terrified uh, of God, but it means that we look at all that Jesus Christ has done for us, and and we understand what it what it would mean for us to be separated from Him. And there are so many things that would seek to separate us from Him in this world, and we would certainly fear being separated from his grace. But yet, as Paul points out, we have the confidence of knowing that he gives us his grace. I've heard fear described once as two types of fear, the childlike fear and the slave-like fear, and I'm sure you've heard that example too. And that is that the slave-like fear is fear that the master will come, fear that the person in charge will come and punish you, perhaps for something you've done wrong. Whereas a childlike fear is the fear that a child has that their parents will leave. And so we as servants of God know that we do not keep his law perfectly. And so there is a fear that says, wow, I'm, I'm afraid that God will punish me for the things that I have done wrong. Yet, of course, the gospel says that Christ took on that punishment, which produces in us a childlike fear that says, now, because I know my salvation is from God— if I have any fear at all, it's fear that he would leave, just as you said. It says in verse 15 that the Gentiles have been dependent on Israel. If their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from dead? And then in this example of the olive tree, he establishes that some of the branches were removed, hence the rejection, but that makes room for the Gentiles, which are grafted on. Now, does this mean that even today, and I'm thinking of the sort of Zionist perspective, does this mean that even today Jews have some sort of special position before God outside of faith in Jesus Christ? Well, he answers that uh, when he says in verse 14, to save some of them. So Paul makes it very clear that he is not expecting he does not uh, believe that there is going to be a mass conversion of the Jews. And he also understands, he hopes that there is going to 
he is looking to see some of them converted, but he also makes it clear that this will be done by grace, by them receiving the grace of Christ, not some uh, special side deal that comes by uh, race or nationality. I'll just say the reason I bring that up is because there are some well-meaning Christians out there that misunderstand oh, yeah. Paul's teachings here. When he describes the Gentiles being grafted into the olive tree of the Jews, certainly salvation comes from the Jews. We hear that in Scripture. But just that, the salvation comes from Jesus Christ. And so anyone, Jew or Gentile, who rejects Christ rejects the salvation that God wants to give them. Right, and Paul, may, you know, again, our, uh, just the section we're looking at today, even if we don't go outside of that, uh, verse 6, it's by grace, not on the basis of works, and you know, not on the basis of anything else. Paul makes it, you know, that's the whole point of uh, the entire book of Romans is uh, justification by grace. So there are no exceptions. There is neither, you know, again, Paul's writing, uh, there is neither Jew nor Gentile. Uh, slave or free, uh, it's through faith in Christ alone. Yeah, Paul is making clear that the Gentiles do have a dependence on Israel, but that's only because it is from Israel come the promises and, of course, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so that's where we see this analogy of the Gentiles being grafted in. But you can also hear in these words Paul's continued concern for the Jews, for the people that he's associated with. Because he says, if you were to cut, this is verse 24, for if you were to cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these natural branches be grafted back into their own olive tree? So in addition to trying to temper the pride of Gentiles who think that they might have some preferential position even over and against the Jews, which is contrary to Paul's message that there is no distinction. But he makes it clear that this the, 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 is not cut off, right? God has not cut off his grace to those who would return. And therein we see his concern and his desire for all people to be saved. Yes, but they will be grafted back in through grace. Right, through, through grace. And so in this case, the tree is not so the, – the olive tree he's using as an example is not so much the ethnic Jews and it's not the heritage of Jews going back to Abraham, but rather it is God's grace and mercy. The tree, of course, is Jesus Christ, and that's what they're being grafted into. Right, and that would be verse 17 where he says, grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root. Of the olive tree. Ah, yes, yes, the root. Go in and explain the root. How, how can we use this imagery to share the gospel with others? Yeah, yeah, well, the root is Christ. And so, uh, you know, when he talks about this grafted in and now sharing in the nourishing root of the olive tree, so everybody that's grafted in, whether it's Jews, Gentiles, whoever it is, it's being connected to Christ. And when we are connected to him, it is then that we receive nourishment. It is then that we produce fruit. Apart from him, apart from the root, well, then it's a dead branch. You know, I've always found it interesting that Paul, the Hebrew of Hebrews, keeper of the law, if one could keep it, he makes his ministry, of course, called by Jesus Christ to the Gentiles. But then in these same verses, he says, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous. So this reveals that Paul has great concern, not just for the Gentiles. He isn't just trying to minister to non-Jews, but rather his goal, which is our goal too, is to reach out to all people regardless of their heritage, regardless – of their previous experiences in the faith. And I think that's something we can take home too, that we should be like Paul and desiring the salvation of all people, but keeping in mind what saves us. As you have noted several times, and it's so important, it cannot be overstated, salvation comes from grace. As, as you also pointed out, Christ is the root of all of our faith, and it should be our pleasure to be grafted in to that tree.
And as he again in verse 18 continues, remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Oh, yes. So again, being, being connected to Christ, it's Christ who supports us. Right. So does Christ need the church on earth? Does Christ need our prayers? Does Christ need our good works? And the answer no. is no. No, but we need him. Yeah, absolutely. And he's called us to faith to do good works, to be a part of the church so that our neighbor can benefit. Yeah. In the last few minutes that we have, is there anything else? I mean, I know there's tons, but is there anything else that you just want to make sure that we point out from any of the verses that we've covered today? Yeah, the only thing that we didn't talk about too much, of course, is verse 22, the kindness and severity of God. Oh, yes. You know, uh, we, we use different terms, of course, <laughs> in the Lutheran church for that. Uh, yeah, it feels you know, very but, law and gospel, doesn't it? Yes, it does. And so, you know, Lutherans can't, uh, Lutherans can't ever consider anything without bringing those, uh, those terms in, right? That's right. And that's because we, that's because it, it's uh, scriptural. We, we find that that's the teaching we find throughout God's word. And that's our goal, too. As we interact with people out in the world, we want to proclaim the law in its fullest severity, but certainly lead up to the gospel in its fullest sweetness. Because the law of God, as Paul has said before, even in this particular letter, the law of God is good. But it does, of course, leave us dead. It leaves us dead in our sins and trespasses and in need of a Savior. I want to ask you, what's a gospel message for the people at home listening? Leave them with some good thoughts before we move on to the end of the episode. Oh, sure. And the gospel message is that uh, despite the, the fact that we in no way deserve it, that God has grafted us into the tree. In other words, he has made us a part of his church, that grace of God comes to each one of us. We live in a world where uh, we live in a world that just doesn't, it lacks forgiveness and it lacks joy. And that's, that can only come by being connected to Christ, knowing that we have been grafted into Christ, connected with, to him by grace. And that's what gives us joy and hope at all times in our lives. Beautifully put. Friends, I'd like to thank my guest this morning, the Reverend Dr. Daniel Olson, pastor of St. Paul Lutheran Church in Luxembourg, Wisconsin. Pastor Olson, thanks for being on the show, and I look forward to when we can do it again. All right. Thanks so much for having me. And I'm also grateful to you, dear Christian, for listening to Thy Strong Word. I've been your host, Pastor Phil Boo. We will gather together around God's word again tomorrow as we cover the second half of Romans chapter 11. Until then, God's peace and blessings be with you all.